Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 7. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, all of them from author Nick Carlson, about astounding arthropods, evolutionary endpoints, and terrifying trials. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support 
and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight from Nick Carlson relates a most unusual experiment involving the space race, cosmic rays, and two creatures that have no understanding of the horrors they are about to unleash. Without further ado, I present to you Bugs in the System. After World War II, Russian agents descended upon German specialists habituating in the Soviet occupation zone and forcefully deported them to the USSR to work on their own scientific projects. This maneuver, dubbed Operation Osiyakum, included renowned astrophysicist Dr. Dietrich Volkov. He performed cosmonautical operations for the Soviets for nearly 17 years before the United States acquired his person during Operation Paperclip. Prior to his employment at NASA, he was debriefed by the National Reconnaissance Office regarding the Soviets' more covert scientific advancements. The following is the first of many accounts Dr. Volkov delivered during the nearly 10-hour interrogation transcribed and condensed for clarity. Have never set foot on a battlefield. Have never embraced a firearm, but those times where I was were more warlike than I could ever have imagined. Being ripped from your family, subjected to forced labor for a greater cause, treated as though you had merely been away on holiday. It was jarring, manic. But I would be lying if I said my sentiments during those times had shifted much. The Russians, they had once more made America their enemy and pretending as though my animosity aligned with theirs was not difficult, that made the work bearable. In my downtrodden state, the babble regarding the so-called space race seemed masturbatory, akin to schoolchildren stacking towers of blocks to see whose would reach the highest without toppling. Between them, they must have sent a small zoo's worth of animals into space. Putting a man on the moon? Yesterday, le voyage dans la lune, was the public's idea of lunar exploration. Now, they speak of it with excitement, in clean, modernized terms, as if it's happening tomorrow. I envy their purity. We were cursed with progress, 
We had not the time to dwell on the implications of our successes. You might think sending up Yuri Gagarin would have been the proper moment to step back, to take a breather. It was not. And it was that attitude that led to the downward spiraling of some of these endeavors. Look through your telescopes. Look at the expanse of space. Observe all the stars of the galaxies held together in harmony. Take a visual snapshot with your mind. Now, consider this. From that snapshot alone, it would be impossible for all those bodies to remain in their proper places without flying into the void. Therefore, something must be holding them together, filling the gaps to ensure that our universe does not spiral out of control. Dark matter, it was dubbed, made tangible, ironically, by intangible measures, gravity, mathematics. How would we even begin conceptualizing the lexicon to convey it in a meaningful manner? Developing the tools necessary, offshooting the branches of science requisite to bust through a wall of nothingness? We haven't, and we won't. Not any time soon. Judging from what happened early on, that might be for the better. The first organisms in space started out small. Fruit flies, mosses, fungi. The jump to more complicated animals was not without its casualties. So many mice, primates, dogs were lost in those years, enough to make even a scientist cringe. Among the early launches were cockroaches. It made sense. They're resilient to many of space's harshest conditions. They are easy to store and keep viable. And they're easy to find, too. They were so abundant in our quarters. My fellow Germans would make jokes telling our captors we were harboring gypsies in our bunks, only for them to be greeted with a colony of the ugly scuttling things. Such playfulness was not appreciated, if you've already guessed. It was quashed with swift efficiency. Our first satellites either failed en route or their cockroach crew did not survive their round trip. We sent up eleven of them, each containing their unique hive. One through seven went catastrophic. Nine through eleven were resounding successes. It was eight that eventually yielded the anomalous results. Only two specimens survived to Paraplaneta Americana, we named Harry and Rosie. Once it was discovered they were alive in their capsules, 
They were sent away immediately for further testing. I was asked to oversee further developments, thanks to my biology credits in university. I guess those extra years in academia had amounted to something, after all. Harry and Rosie were kept in separate receptacles deep underground to minimize the impact of cosmic rays. Those first few days they displayed lethargic behavior, loss of appetite, and delayed reaction times. It was disconcerting. The implication that even the hardiest creatures would have trouble adapting to outer space conditions. Regardless, I was instructed to continue monitoring them until their death. Sacrilegious and hypocritical as it was, I found myself praying for their death to come. After five days, Harry and Rosie displayed signs of vitality once more. They were readily accepting food, and when we were late in our providing, they would chew on the styrofoam egg cartons in their receptacles. This was not a concerning habit. Cockroaches are well known for their ubiquitous diet. Otherwise, their movements were erratic, aimless. They were not exploring their environments as cockroaches are apt to do. Neither did they react to the typical stimuli, like sudden changes in light. Even early on, it was speculated that exposure to rogue waves had addled their physiologies. Where it would all go was anyone's guess, but my job was to deliver answers, not to guess. I maintained my observations. It was a day 16 when I noticed the aberrations. Harry and Rosie each displayed asymmetric patches of discoloration within their exoskeletons, similar to bruising on melanosis, the latter of which I named in my subsequent report. For obvious reasons, both my peers and superiors were dissatisfied with my hypothesis. Neither cockroach had molted in over two months, meaning nothing could have happened during those vulnerable in-between times. Chitin, the structural component in exoskeletons, also does not allow for such spontaneous pigmentation. At that point, dissection was an option thrown our way, but at that point I refused. If the affliction killed them anyway, there would be no need to cut our observation phase short. It would be pertinent to know if their condition was the result of space-related malignant tumors. A pertinent piece of knowledge by any stretch. At least that's what I told them. Their strangeness only compounded the deeper I dug. For one... The discoloration did not seem to either refract or absorb a light. This became apparent as I examined Rosie underneath a microscope and thought I or someone had capped the lens. 
until Rosie twitched, and my eye was met with the glowing, intricate brick red of exoskeleton. As I came to find, I didn't even need a microscope to become further perturbed. Even in low light, the spot stood out like black on white. Prolonged eye contact with the patches resulted in some troubling side effects. When I blinked, their dark shapes swam in my vision, like a Rorschach inkblot test burned behind the skin of my eyelids. And if I were to lock my gaze, I experienced a swooping sensation, nausea in my eyes and upheaval in my gut, as if I wanted to fall. The colors seemed bottomless, like a hellish pit, like there was something brooding beyond, hiding in the darkness, something I wanted and something I feared. For obvious reasons, all these I kept to myself. The Soviets were cruel and calculating in weeding out weak clinks, and I had no desire to give an excuse for them to cart me off. And regardless, such fanciful projection is antithetical to the pursuit of science. I had to focus on my work, to not get lost in postulations. It's no surprise that cockroaches leave behind droppings. It's a constant reminder of their tenacious appetites. They use them to communicate, to mark where they've been. So I thought very little of it when I saw their receptacles had been reupholstered with their feces. It was when Harry tried attacking a pair of forceps I introduced to the receptacle, gnawing the tips like how a dog gnaws at a bone that I grew concerned. It was predatory behavior, the need to consume. With dissection still not an option, I guessed analyzing their droppings might yield some clues. I sectioned them off and attempted to collect samples, but to my confusion, I found roughly 90% of the droppings would simply not dislodge from the receptacle surface. The 10% that I was able to collect showed no signs of abnormalities. I was able to conclude I was collecting old samples left before Harry and Rosie developed their afflictions. As for the other 90, despite my best efforts, microscopic analysis of the tip of the scraper I used registered nothing. In fact, the tool seemed coated with a fine translucent dust ink. Only later did I comprehend that it was glass, I had been chipping away at the glass floor and sidings of the receptacles. It was confounding. I was certain I was making contact with the droppings, yet it appeared as though my tool had simply passed through them and made contact with the glass. Now I realize what was really happening there, now that there's a name to it. In that time, though, my curiosity only peaked, plummeting through the eternal cosmic chasms 
in the insect's shells. I became protective of my work, single-minded. I couldn't help it. Soviet ideology did not allow for such secrecy, and my introversion only made them more insistent. I convinced them that foreign bodies in the sample area might disrupt the integrity of the insect's development. Unnecessary stress, outside chemicals. All that was, as you say, horseshit. Harry and Rosie had become their own unique entities. Nothing could have swayed their path. They were hell-bent in their subconscious quest to defy our expectations. I gladly went along for the ride. Their impalpable droppings continued to pile up, and I observed with private fascination how their appetites grew, how their unorthodox behavior continued to evolve in its bizarre sideways skew. For the moment, I had forgotten the implications of these findings that our own cosmonauts might develop similar conditions. But although they had enslaved me to put their own men in space, I was serving myself. Dietrich Volkov oversees these. These bold new uber-roaches. Not the Soviets. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Once I broke free from their bondage, I would scream my discoveries to the world. Harry and Rosary were my partners in crime. The pebbles I would toss to make ripples in the pond. It may sound juvenile now, but I wish they had seen it the same way. I wish they had cooperated with my human pretensions. Isn't that the dream? The universe cooperating with our human pretensions. It is pretension that ensures the dream, ironically. I'm no God-fearing man. But even I know when the time is ripe to sit back and let the universe speak for itself. Miracles, yes, but one at a time. It can wait. We cannot. And that's a travesty. But I digress. After this second week, I found that Harry appeared to be missing from his receptacle. 
I knew all too well that cockroaches' propensity to hiding, yet he was nowhere to be seen after my exhaustive combing. I first assumed that someone had moved him during one of my off periods, but after querying my supervisors, I learned that not only was a deportation not officially authorized, but I was the only one to frequent the room since last contact. This naturally led to accusations of sabotage. Repeating my claims in my head only became more ludicrous each time. You have stolen Soviet property and are planning to smuggle it to our enemies. Right. I stole a space-travel-addled cockroach and planned to sell it to the Americans. They would pay top dollar for an insect. At least it would be cheap to feed and keep. A lot of things the Russians were, but trusting, they were not. Tensions rose until I uncovered Harry's new whereabouts, but the revelation did not bring relief. On the contrary, it nearly floored me with shock and awe. Harry was in Rosie's receptacle. As I mentioned before, cockroaches' ability to squeeze through spaces thin as a sheet of paper has made them pioneers of survival and endurance. But the same technology to keep our spacecraft airtight was employed to ensure the integrity of their pens. Not even an atom could have made its way inside. There had to have been a breach in the glass. Again, the Soviets were quick to blame me for the transgression. Ironic that proving the truth of my innocence required the reasonable explanation of a physically impossible feat. I was frustrated and scared. I knew they would take no more excuses. I had to figure out the source, to plunge even deeper down the dark well I'd sprung. My attention was drawn to the droppings, which had proliferated so greatly I bothered not with them at a point. How they seemed to defy my attempts to study them. How matters seemed to pass through them. Then it hit me. Once more, my assumptions proved to be correct, although I did not want it to be. By focusing on the spots where large amounts of droppings had gathered, I could insert the tip of the scraper through the outside of the glass wall and end up inside the receptacle. Whatever new, strange material was in their feces could somehow interact with the solid glass and annihilate it. Delete it from existence. Harry had squeezed through the freshly formed gap to be with Rosie and with such primitive-minded creatures. I could only imagine one reason. They had to break from their pens and unite. I had not the words to properly convey what had happened, and the Soviets had not the understanding to accept my inability to do so. I was placed on probation. Harry and Rosie were formally moved to new receptacles, 
and the explanation my peers and I chalked up, corrosion to the glass via some form of noxious secretion, was good enough for our superiors. Any self-respecting entomologist would have rolled his eyes at that, but compliance was the only thing keeping me from harsher punishment after that incident. I dared not speak out, even with any earnest warning that Harry might have impregnated Rosie. If their droppings had done something so radical as to annihilate solid matter, imagine what their offspring might be capable of. By the time my probation was up, I was anxious to check back on Harry and Rosie. Their new receptacles were deeper underground, downgraded to cramped tubular holes in the wall that even a lowly cockroach would have frowned upon. I knew exactly what I was looking for when I went to check on Rosie to see if things had changed. She had deposited an uthica, which had adhered to the tube's plastic siding. Paraplaneta Americana's egg cases are typically a caramel brown color. This Uthaka, however, was pitched black, the same shineless hue of the splotches on the parents' exoskeletons. This was a remarkable and untoward development. Whatever they had been exposed to out in space had infected their genes, enough to pass on to their kin, and if the nymphs were viable, there was no telling how they would turn out. The Black Uthaka was compelling enough to finally attract outside attention, and upon my next report, Harry and Rosie had frequent visitors. Theories among those who saw them ranged from the plausible some form of solar radiation sickness, to the outlandish, being Harry and Rosie didn't exist, they had been replaced by doubles from a parallel universe. If only we knew what we were truly dealing with. Radiation sickness and doppelgangers seem paltry compared to what we know now. I had long taught myself at that point not to let Anything surprised me regarding the insects, yet it still was a surprise to see that the nymphs had hatched in three days. Cockroach nymphs are pure white when they're born, leading some people to mistake them for rare albinos. This wasn't the case. They were the same color as their Uthaka, miniature versions of their parents, and at such a large scale compared to the droppings, I could see that they did not cast a shadow. That was the first major indicator for me, that what the parents had inundated in space was something that defied all conventional laws of matter, of physics, of science. Their nymphs existed as holes in reality, manifestations of things that simply should not be. 
They swarm the inside of their tube like interstellar ants, and exactly one hour after their birth, they as one converged upon Rosie. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Rosie, despite her affliction, still remained fairly cockroach-like in terms of what she could and could not do. These things held no such distinction. They dug through her shell like a hot knife through butter, and I watched the poor bug rupture from the inside, her pus-colored viscera exploding from her offspring's burrows, her extremities twitching as if electrocuted. Then she stilled and collapsed entirely, as if sublimating into thin air. There was a frame, a rosy-shaped frame, of blackness in her place, then it broke apart into nymphs, and as they moved, they released a veritable trail of the same annihilating droppings, like dragging a pencil tip across paper. I was aghast, completely stupefied about what to do. They would break out. They would escape just like Harry did, and then what the hell would they do? These creatures, the universe was not ready for them, and as I flashed on a bevy of possibilities, one of them did just that. The way it scuttled up the wall in sickening zigzags, it awoke within me a primal animal instinct, our natural squeamish fear of cockroaches. I forgot my place, and like an idiot, I squashed the damn thing with my palm. I didn't expect to crush it, knowing how difficult it is to kill them. I also didn't expect the unbelievable pain, as if a lit cigarette had been thrust into my skin. I reflexively drew my hand back and saw the nymph squirming in a pool of smoking flesh, and it sank into my hand like a stone through water. The agony that followed was undefinable. My mind had gone blank, drunk with panic. I could only recall the exact sensation afterward. Explosive. Tiny minds rupturing my ligaments and bones. I could feel pints of blood boiling and creeping down my muscles. My hand and forearm turned red and bubbled. I remember... These are all details I gathered later. In that moment, I had burst from the room, shrieking like an alp, yelling to stop the nymphs to get it out of me. I was apprehended almost immediately. The medics saw the sizzling lesion in my palm and dragged me to a neighboring room, and against my will, they had drawn a scalpel and chiseled it into my flesh. That pain jolted me back to life. It was cold and sharp, almost a welcome relief from the nymph, and they had dislodged it. Blood seeped forth and dripped down like liquid cobwebs, and I watched as the nymph writhed on its back immobilized. That was the least of my concerns. I looked over to the medics and I spat, Get to the lab! Stop them. 
but they did not understand my German tongue, and it took a brief time for them to get the message. That frenzied minute of incomprehension may have cost us much more than it should have. As they left the room, I tore the gauze from an attendant's grasp and wrapped my hand up to stem the flow of blood and bolted for the laboratory. By that time, an alarm had gone off the lab, and the room was lit with beams of crazy red light. But each crimson flare illuminated the terror of what had unfolded. They had all escaped, crawling up the walls, leaving black trails like infected blood vessels, branching underneath skin. I watched, mouth agape, enraptured with horror, as others poured in behind me. My peers did not understand the extent of what was happening. One of them armed himself with an aerosol of formic acid and laid waste to the nymphs. They dropped to the floor immediately, but the chemicals failed to appropriately react, and they scattered, crisscrossing their dark lines toward the gathered crowd. One well-meaning fool stomped on the nymph, an action I was too late to stop. He immediately fell to the floor, his leg twitching, his liquefying flesh shot out from his boot. That was enough to break the crowd, to make them scream and flee from the lab. It was chaos for the next hour. The unfortunate fellow was carted away, and the nymph, was chiseled from the bottom of his foot, too. My own palm flared with sympathetic agony as I watched him go, strong enough to make me fear that there was another nymph inside me. When we evacuated, the lab was buried. Literal tons of concrete blocks were laid over the premises. Then the hallways were flooded, then that was sealed again. Then the floor above was collapsed and sealed with liquid lead. We did what we felt we had to do. That's what we told ourselves. None of us wanted to admit it was a cataclysmic, overcompensatory, knee-jerk reaction to something we didn't understand. Harry was lost, too, and so we lost the only hope of possibly replicating what we had done. We could have captured them, preserved them, maybe studied them further. Now, what are they doing? Did they become crushed? Were they suffocated? Are they continuing to thrive? Will they emerge from the ruins after so long to continue to chew holes? And if so, what will become of the surface world we all know and live in? It didn't end there. There's another piece of trivia about cockroaches for you. The bacteria present in their guts that they shed like hair are practically their own ecosystem. And they're hereditary. Everyone in that room was exposed to the nymph's own dark pathogens. 
I saw the pictures myself, sent to me anonymously in unmarked manila envelopes, perhaps as a forced guilt trip as I spent the next six months in quarantine. The hemorrhaging, the diarrhea, the bloating of the 21 personnel in that room. 18 died violent, disgusting, humiliating deaths. The shame I felt holed up in my lonely cell could have killed me too. I wish it had. They, of course, blamed me for it. I was relegated to demeaning manual labor for the remainder of my time in the USSR. That whole time I wondered to myself, why didn't they just kill me out of suspicion that I might, well, do what I'm doing now? I realize now, in all their arrogance, they thought they wouldn't have to let me go. They thought they could get away with their ideological uh, conquest to become the dominant player on the world stage. All the better reason to up your efforts, I might say. You cannot let those rotten, shadowy devils win. There will be a plague on this good earth, much like those dark matter nymphs. Dark matter. Now we're back here. Now, I, I know what to call them. Now, I know what was happening. They should not have existed. By all known physical laws, they should not have existed. They did not register to us. Our own flesh and stone rebelled at their mere presence. They deserved to be jettisoned back into deep space to reunite with that mysterious, inscrutable, invisible mass let them feed off stardust and gas and propagate through their own untenable designs. We're not ready for them. Not yet. There have been other atrocities, other groundbreaking forward leaps that very nearly led us straight off a cliff. The only reason they never saw the light of day is because of the greater context at hand. The space race. One iota of information from those failures gets out to the world. The Soviet Union is ruined. It amazes me to this day how much more they have hidden to prop up their guise of stability and progress. The cruel irony is something could have come from all that. The agony of defeat almost always leads to better things in some form or another. But they suppressed it, deleted it from their collective subconscious entirely. And do not imagine yourself tall, thinking that you and the rest of the world are any different from them. The Soviets, they were just too obvious about it. What have you buried? What bridges have you burned when their direction started going awry. It sickens me to dwell on this further, but I suppose you want to hear more. I shall divulge. It's not like I have any other choice. I take some pleasure in it, but only the pleasure of expelling a malignant fever. 
I can only hope you learn from me. I can only hope someone learns something from all this. Independent searches of the area Dr. Volkov claimed to have worked at revealed a large patch of refurbished earth, but deeper digging uncovered no evidence of any abnormal findings. If what he claims is true, and his hypothesis of dark matter affected insects is correct, then we can rightfully guess that the specimens perished underground. It is to be noted, however, that Dr. Volkov's prior association with the Nazi party implies the possibility of him still harboring animosity toward the United States. His testimony could be interpreted as clouded with judgmentalism and propped up by scare tactics. As for the supposed victims of dark matter-affected bacteria, all analysis suggested the patients were suffering from severe radiation poisoning, but nothing more could be inferred beyond that. There have been no other records of animals or humans from the United States launches returning with the black bruising Dr. Volkov described, although the information in his subsequent testimonies lends itself to more troubling implications. We recommend taking this story with a grain of salt. However, with dark matter being, as of now, such an obscure field of cosmology, it would be unwise to discount it entirely. If anything, his account serves to prove what befuddling and unnerving accounts the prospect of space exploration can inspire. We also recommend proceeding with our endeavors, but with a fresh sense of caution and respect. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I hope you enjoyed Bugs in the System as written by author Nick Carlson and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented featured author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Carlson, spelled C-A-R-L-S-O-N, and you'll find yourself on his profile at our horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com. There you'll find links to his official website, as well as to his Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit accounts, where you can get his latest updates and follow him today. You'll also find a link to the Amazon page for his novel, Simeon, a horror about Russian experimentation not unlike what you just heard. And, by all means, if you enjoy what you read, don't forget to leave him a five-star review and a kind word, and let him know you heard about him here on this show. 
Again, the URL is simplyscarypodcast.com slash Carlson, spelled C-A-R-L-S-O-N. Thanks for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Our second trip, courtesy once again of Dick Carlson, follows the adventures of a curious fellow who decides one evening to venture into his local woods to answer a question he's had. Unfortunately, he's about to learn more about the inhabitants of those woods than he ever wanted to know. Without further ado, I present to you Where the Deer Go to Die. Fact. According to the Insurance Information Institute, there's a 1 in 116th chance that you, taking your car out for a drive, will crash into a deer. Those odds increased drastically during the fall and winter months, during the white-tailed deer's mating season, known colloquially as the rut. One and a half million deer-related insurance claims per year. 147 deaths per year on average. You're probably wondering when and why I became such an expert on this topic. Well, what else could I do in spite of it happening to me? When something catastrophic and novel like that occurs, one of your next moves is to research the hell out of it. Inform yourself of your plight. Try and fool yourself into some kind of understanding or acceptance to deaden the nagging, incredulous agony in your head. The one that constantly forces you to ask yourself two damning words. Why me? I may have been dozing off. My headlights might have been dim. Perhaps I was distracted by some weird piece of debris on my windshield. Regardless, all I can recall was something large and vaguely animal rushing into my field of view. There was a muffled crash, a skull-rattling shatter. Everything went blurry and red followed by the sounds of a dying engine and a dislodged front panel dragging against the road. I limped my spent car to the shoulder and staggered out the door. I blinked against the darkness, the night air thick with blood and gasoline. My vision adjusted to the bountiful shafts of moonlight, and I saw it sprawled in the middle of the road, a mangled pile of hide and protruding bone. Tranced, I almost didn't see the other car, a pair of angry, glowing eyes that swerved and honked past us, lashing me with a whip of cold air. It was only then I comprehended that the front end of my car had crumpled in on itself like a soda can, and that I was in dire need of a tow truck and a cup of coffee. In retrospect, an incident like that gets under your skin in a more detached, impersonal manner, I feel. I'd been in three accidents in my life. A hydroplane totaled my old car. Some idiot who sideswept me because I was in their blind spot. Those two at least had circumstances behind them. Human error, lack of foresight. Easy solutions to avoidable problems. Despite the grief they incurred, I at least know why they happened. There were reasons why. Now this 
The stag didn't know any better. I couldn't know any better. Its brain was hopped up on sex hormones, preoccupied with screwing every doe from Duluth to DeLonga, and in precisely the right place at precisely the right time. Its lustful quest drove it into the road where I drove into it. Without a car to commute with, my time working from home gave me time to fulminate over my misfortune. I dwelled on the matter for hours, days even, yet I could only arrive at the conclusion that it just happened. That it's what nature intended. No circumstances, no reason. It just was. I guess that's helping me cope with the other thing that happened to me. Ironically, it also involved deer. With the crash, I hated that animal, and every breath it took down to its last. The frantic phone calls, incomprehensible insurance agents, and rampant deductibles were a testament to that. With this, well, again, I find myself wishing they'd have died for their own sake. Working from home also presented ample opportunities to explore other activities. One of them was walking. At the office, the greatest amount of walking I did was across the street to grab a sandwich for lunch. With additional downtime, I took to exploring my neighborhood for the first time in a long while. Living on the outskirts of a national park, Deer were never a foreign sight to me. At least once a month in the dark, early morning hours, I'd see one or two trotting across the road in search of fresh gardens to devour, mostly does. From what I've heard, the bucks tend to be secretive and stick to the depths of the forest. With the rut, that number increased to roughly two per week, including evenings, when I usually went out on my walks. That's when the bucks became more frequent. When the sun sets and darkness swallows the earth, even the most familiar of places can turn into an alien landscape. Normally, my days end at six in the evening, and I spend the rest of my nights grounded in the house. But with the lessened daylight hours and the chilly air, I felt an invigoration during my nighttime walks I hadn't felt in years. The coldness was like little nipping jaws on the bridge of my nose, bracing daggers in my throat and lungs. The street lights alternated orange and white, and my shadow crept and warped down the street as I passed underneath them. The skies were schizophrenic in their variety. I saw marbled gray clouds, wispy tentacles of vapor, a veritable blanket of black, and sometimes unbelievable clarity. So many stars, I may have been looking at particles of sand on a cosmic beach. Those times I saw deer were always in the streetlights, majestic silhouettes that just sort of appeared from the gloom, only to vanish again on the other side of the beam. Sometimes they saw me, swiveling their shadowy heads over to me, their antlers like jagged pagan crowns. We would stare for a moment, and then, with a flick of its tail, it would gallop away, its hooves making no sound on the asphalt. In those cold, lonesome moments, inexplicable thoughts crossed my mind. I wondered where exactly they'd gone off to. 
What if I were to forget about my walk, my work, my life for a night, and just follow one of those wandering bucks into the void? The question lingered in me like grubs in dead wood throughout the day of the autumn months. Then, one cold December night, a Friday, I took my chance. I don't know if I heard him or not, but something compelled me to turn around, just in time to see him emerge under the light. He was an impressive specimen, a twelve-pointer if I remember correctly. His winter coat had grown out in full, adding a layer of tawny shag to his figure. I stared at him, an invisible pull tugging in his direction. I looked around. All the lights in the surrounding houses were off. The moon was so intense it could have been early morning, and the buck was moving away. I made my choice. Readying myself, I followed him. I kept my distance, knowing that one wrong move would alert him to my presence, and he'd lose me in the undergrowth. The buck ambled up a hill between two houses. I picked up the pace, the sounds of air conditioning units drowning up my footsteps. Thankfully, the backyard wasn't fenced in, and after a quick scope, I slept across the lawn and was not too far behind the buck when I entered the forest. Intuition told me the buck was probably looking for food, or a receptive doe, but I didn't care where it would take me. Even before the crash, my life wasn't terribly exciting. Something as simple and aimless as following a deer was the most daring thing I'd done since my teenage years. And even back then, I wasn't exactly what one would call a wild child. I felt a tense giddiness within me. I wasn't supposed to be doing this. But I didn't care. I more than welcomed it. I embraced it. The trees were thin in this part of the woods, so I was able to stay out of sight and keep an eye on the buck. After a few minutes, it emerged into a new backyard. I stopped. I wasn't as close to the heart of the forest as I suspected. After assessing its surroundings, the buck lowered its head and began uprooting a bit of petunias. I sighed, realizing suddenly how stupid this all was. I was inside of someone's house. If they had a sharp eye and enough of an inclination, they'd see my face standing out in the brush like a flashlight. I took one last look at the buck, then turned around and began picking my way back between the trees. Several things happened at once. A metallic crash from the side of the house. The scurrying of feet the deep, booming bark of a dog, and I saw the canine tear from a doghouse and across the yard. The buck startled, jumping in the air, and bolted to the right, back into the forest. I could see its gray-cell form flitting between the trees. In a bout of recklessness, I dismissed my pledge to turn back and followed it back in. After a moment of breakneck running, it came to a stop and threw its head back over its haunches. I could still hear the dog going berserk in the distance. Hidden behind a tree, I reflected on the noise I'd heard. It was most likely a trash can, knocked over by a raccoon or a coyote. Whatever it was, it was of prime interest to the dog, who continued barking its head off. Then, whatever it was, silenced the dog, 
as it gave a last high-pitched yelp. The resulting silence that followed was more chilling than the late-night air. Even the buck seemed dumbstruck, having gone completely still, save for a nervous twitching of its ears. I stewed in my dark corner. Was it a coyote? Wolves weren't found this far east, and bears, they were astronomically rare. Maybe its owner had only come out with a physical reprimand. Whatever the case, I wasn't going to turn back and find out now. As if overcome with a new directive, the deer swiveled its neck forward and trotted off. I didn't want to resume immediately. The option to give up and go home never seemed more inviting. Stop it, a voice in my head urged. Follow this through until the end. I still don't know whether or not I should have listened. As I followed, I realized that I was making more noise than normal, yet the buck seemed not to notice or care. Instead, it stopped again, brought its snout to the ground, then reared its head up, its lips curling back in a bizarre sneer. I watched this ritual with subdued fascination. It snapped back to attention and galloped off, and I broke into a full run. Weaving through the trees, I realized what it must have been with a smirk. Only one thing could drive a male so mindlessly dogged like that. The ground below us began to slope downward, and while I had to step carefully among the rocks, the buck simply seemed to glide from one uneven outcropping to the next, like a phantom in the moonlight. I could tell now we were definitely in the heart of the forest. The shrubs and thorns at waist level were overgrown and grabbed at my clothes. If the buck couldn't hear my manic swiping and crashing then, I knew I was definitely in the clear to catch up, however noisily I wanted to. There must have been some seriously primed tail wherever it was going. The ground leveled out again, then after a brief pursuit through a patch of young growth, I heard the sound of rushing water. Was it only looking for a drink? Then the trees gave way entirely, and the pit lay before us. It was a stony gulch, like an empty swimming pool in the middle of the forest, that stretched out of sight. Its bottom was jagged with boulders. A circular drainage pipe wide enough for me to walk upright through emptied a weak stream of water into the ravine. I stopped, bewildered, but the buck went right down into the pit. My stomach gave a lurch at what I saw within it. There was a single doe, lying down, its spindly legs tucked underneath it. As I breathed in, I recoiled at a sharp, musky, ammonic odor. Without having smelled anything like it before, I knew exactly what it was. I was surprised every buck in the state hadn't converged on this one spot to this one doe. As the buck approached, the doe's wet black eyes flashed with fear. The moon reflected in her vacuous pupils. He circled her, nuzzling her flanks, giving affectionate jabs with his antlers. She tried shifting away, but she seemed hesitant to get up, as if injured or weak. The buck became insistent, shoving at her hindquarters. The doe emitted a squeal, trying to reach back and snap at him. 
She wasn't having any of it. It was only when the buck tried lowering himself onto her that she rose shakily and scurried away from him. I blinked, thinking it was just a trick of the moonlight. The harder I gazed, the more my body seemed to forcefully reject what I was seeing. Yet there it was, solidly, undeniably there. Something was clinging to the doe's stomach, swaying like a pendulum from her movement. I let out something between a gag and a gasp when she turned in my direction. Reaching up from her underside and clasping her side was a human arm. Someone was attached to her underside. The buck must have seen it too, or heard me. Regardless, it whipped around and tried to run. But a sharp whistle cut through the air, and the buck shrieked, rearing up and then dropped like a bag of bricks to the ground with a crunch. Amid the regal tangle of its antlers, something ivory and spear-like protruded from the buck's eye. What sickened me most from the spectacle is how the thing underneath the doe merely shifted its grasp, and its host lay back down to resume its laden vigil. From deep within the drainage pipe came the sound of whispers and dragging feet. I didn't want to see whatever was going to happen. No one would have. But I felt like I'd lost an old friend, and I had to see his fate through to the end, no matter how horrible that end might be. The entrance to the pipe blazed with orange torchlight. The sounds from within almost seemed to pour out, echoing and reverberating. I ducked lower behind the edge of the gulch. People emerged from the drainage pipe, grotesque, deformed people, stunted, completely naked, pale as the moon, hairless, with warped, ape-like countenances. Like stalking lizards, they crawled among the rocks, their moist skin like glistening embers in the glow of their torches. I could tell they weren't normal people, some kind of subspecies, a lost hominid. Terror and fascination kept me glued to the spot. The men, distinguishable from their shriveled endowments, surrounded the dead buck like wild hogs, butchering it with blades, unwrapping it like a Christmas present. Complete deconstruction in seconds. The more nubile of the group gathered around the doe. I found myself more drawn to her with horror. They clustered by her head, and one of them held out what resembled a small, shallow basin. The others dipped their fingertips in the basin and seemed to anoint the dough, streaking a liquid across her snout under her chin. The fresh smell of deer piss hit me, and as I reeled from the odor, the doe stood again, and a creature scooped up the thing hanging off its stomach. I nearly fainted from the sight. It was an infant, one of their own, its chin dribbling with milk, and it let out a cry that was matched by the low, garbled wails of the matrons. Transfixed, I didn't notice that the males had finished their work on the buck and had diverted their attention to me. Something whistled past my ear and stuck in the tree behind me. I jumped reflexively to my feet 
and I was suddenly in full view of the coven. The pit exploded with their unearthly shrieks, and as the females among them scattered for cover, the males stiffened and held out their arms in an aiming formation. They seemed to drag the knuckles of their other hands up the arms from their wrist. There was a collective snap like a bowstring, and I ducked again, and the air above me rained with pearly white projectiles that again stuck to the trees behind me. I got up and pivoted to run before they could reload again, but once again I stopped at what I saw. The trees, freshly splintered, with what looked like arrows of bone, were marked with deep scratches of archaic symbols, circles and swirls and gouges. The weight of the revelation held me in place. This was their patch, their feeding ground, and I was the intruder there. That split second of frozen dread nearly cost me. I could feel the back of my leg split open and jam in place, locked by a penetrating shaft below the underside of my knee. The pain wasn't intense at first, but the sudden lack of motion and the ghostly sensation of a foreign body inside my skin caused my blood to spike, lungs to seize. Spasming with panic, I lurched into the woods away from their line of fire, but with the downward slope and one crippled leg gaining uphill traction was a lost cause. Instead, I found myself drifting slightly downward, back down toward the gulch. I lost my footing. My legs stiffened entirely, and I keeled over and hit the ground with a breathtaking crash. The angle carried me downhill. My elbows and sides caromed off protruding rocks, and my clothes tangled in brambles. The world was a dark, spinning, light-headed blur for a moment that felt like years and suddenly I came to a stop in a cold, muddy puddle. Bruised, flaring, my mouth flooded with the taste of sludge, I pushed myself up and stumbled incoherently among the boulders. I glanced up, and as my vision swam back into place, I realized I was essentially in a giant bowl. Only one way to go, through the pit. In the distance, behind a bend in the gorge, I could hear frantic shrieks and tumbling rocks. They hadn't known I'd fallen back into their hole. I took what I knew to be my one last chance and ran. It was an absurdist endeavor, hopping on my one good leg, sparing only precious half-seconds to balance myself on the other, which sent wooden jabs of pain up my body with each heaving motion. I prayed the sounds of their own manic scrambling would drown out my constant kicking of pebbles, splashing of puddles, and ragged, horrified breathing. I rounded another bend and saw light flickering in the clearing. I staggered towards it, my heart elating, then blackening as I got closer. It was a crudely assembled campfire, a smoking spit of organs roasting over it, surrounded by spikes topped by the shadowy, decomposing heads, of bucks. I had escaped their hunting grounds straight to their nest. In the firelight were run-down bungalows made of sticks and dried mud. Over the crackling flames I heard rustling from within them, like worms crawling from soil. Pallid pygmies emerged from the bungalows, 
and laid their beady black eyes on me. They shrieked in alarm. In my blind frenzy I barreled towards them, and they retreated into their shelters. I would have slipped past them into the woods beyond if my damn leg hadn't given out. I fell and crashed into one of the bungalows, taking it down at its foundations. A creature inside burst from a collapsed pile of sticks and bolted past the fire with a screech, like a wailing wraith in the night. I scrambled away as more creatures shifted from underneath the rubble, finally latching onto a low-hanging branch and dragging myself back up. The rubble fell away entirely, and the image within burned everything else I'd seen that night out of my mind. Two other creatures were there, one spread out on the ground, her belly swollen with child, one overseeing her, who snarled and bared her gray teeth at me, and next to them, curled tight into a ball, a doe. She seemed catatonic, unaware of the chaos around her. Her engorged udder juddered from her stomach. I could see veins snaking underneath its thin skin. I never even knew deer had udders. Paralyzed, I felt a warm liquid caking my side and smelled the odor of deer piss again. Backing away into the cover of the trees, I offhandedly wondered if a gang of horny bucks would descend on me as well as a coven of enraged pygmies. Torchlight bloomed in the distant darkness. Once more I turned and ran, but there was another sudden drop and I plunged down into a shallow cliff of a creek. I went under and the frigid water engulfed me, seizing the breath from me, but with one last shred of thought, I undid my coat and took it off like old skin, finally breaking the surface, letting the current take me away, away from the deformed, unspeakable horrors festering in the pit. The current carried me to a bridge overlooking a rocky shore, and I clambered up great chunks of granite to the side of the road. The remnants of my clothes felt stuck to my skin, my blood was slush in my veins. My muscles were icy with agony. With the moonlight whitening my complexion, I was indistinguishable from a walking corpse. Thankfully, the bone marrow in my leg had dislodged from my brief swim. A passing pickup truck flashed its high beams at me and pulled over. The driver was a real delight, a thick-bodied, shirtless hick staring at me with a quizzical expression. What in God's name happened to you, man? He boomed. I shook my head. Can you just take me home, please? I uttered. His brow furrowed. You a cop? I shook my head again. His expression lightened. Well, get yourself in here, then. I reckon you ought to find a... Golly! The man wrinkled his nose. What do you smell like deer piss? Do I even want to know? No, I replied flatly. He shrugged and accelerated back onto the road as I settled in next to him. I think at one point he started going off about compost or something, but to me the ride back home was a long, deadened affair. I never wanted this to happen. All I had desired was deviation from the norm, an injection of abnormality from my dull life. 
a distraction from the misfortune. I could have gone the rest of my life without knowing about that coven of lost hominids in the woods. I know I could have. I harbored fleeting, treacherous illusions that I was being punished for my curiosity, for even daring to explore beyond the reaches of what I knew to be true, familiar, comforting. A hot shower did good to cleanse me of the mud and blood, but the foul thoughts in my head persisted with a vengeance. They were doing something to the does, training them, poisoning them, hypnotizing, whatever the term might be, inducing them to lactate to provide milk for their own young. That cocktail of urine and pheromones, and whatever else they were cultivating, that had to have been their M.O. From what I saw in the bungalow I had collapsed, the women with sunken chests and weak midriffs, I could understand why they needed to turn to other animals to rear their offspring. They had to be involved to be inviolable for motherhood. As for the bucks that showed up, attracted by the inevitable chemical spills, to the pygmies it would be more like gathering than hunting. To a scientist, the implications of this finding, a human subspecies co-evolving with native mammals would have been groundbreaking. To me, it was disgustingly tragic. Natural selection and random chance had screwed them over, left them for dead in the forest, broken and wholly dependent on another species for their own procreation. I'd read about certain tribes in the Indo-Pacific reacting with visceral hostility to outsiders' attempts to contact. It was no stretch speculating how they'd remained undiscovered for so long. In other words, I wasn't lucky to have seen them. I was lucky to have gotten away. That night, as I sat in my living room in a state of sleepless shock, I knew that I'd be fine with keeping them a secret. Nature had done them dirty. Best to let them be, to let them die away, swallowed by the forest, and let nature run its thoughtless course. Things didn't quite work out that way. I only saw them in the light of the early morning. I hadn't moved from my dead-eyed perch for the entirety of the night. The sun had risen gradually, and I had no idea how long they'd been standing there. All I know is that I took a closer look through the back windows and jumped from my chair, for each one was occupied by a buck staring directly at me, their breath fogging the glass. My hand was pounding over my heart. I watched them as they tilted their heads back and bared their teeth, the same gesture the buck from last night had performed. I'd read that the behavior was called a flame in response, displayed after smelling the pheromones of a receptive female. Oh, no. I breathed, backing away slowly. The driver had asked why I smelled of deer piss. Even a hot shower wasn't enough to expunge the scent from my skin. One of them brought its head back again and slammed it forward, its antlers jabbing the windowpane with a startling thud. It reared and thrust forward again, the very walls around me rattling from the force. The others joined in 
I could see their eyes, buggy to the point of seeing their whites, crazed and incoherent as they drummed my windows with percussive insanity. I couldn't hold out for much longer. A pain shattered. I practically flew to my feet, my legs smarting from the arrow wound. I expected to see a buck halfway through my window, tossing its head and kicking its legs wildly. The deer all vanished. A single object sat on the carpet, an arrow made of bone. Before my eyes, a volley of arrows soared through the panes. The dawn air became heavy with projectiles and broken glass with a cacophonous explosion of sound. The fragmented frame of my windows simply fell limp to the floor, and beyond the wreckage came a battalion of pygmies emerging from the forest in one onrushing flood. It was too much. Their demonic whispering chorus rooted me once more. My injured leg, pulsing and burning, refused to let the rest of my body move. They crawled into my home with spider-like limbs, their sneering, contorted faces gnarled with excitement. They surrounded me. I could see their ribs, the skeletal shadows on their chest, their swinish eyes, their shrunken manhoods dangling shamelessly. They pulled me to the floor, some standing on my limbs, some crouched next to me, pinning my hands or holding my head in place. I was too dazed to struggle. I could only watch as one of them stood over me, aiming his arm at my forehead like a rifle. There was a grungy sling hanging from his fingers. He inserted another arrow and pulled it the length of his arm, stretching the sling taut up to his shoulder. "'Dear God!' I whispered. But before he let go, I noticed that the tip of the arrow was rounded and blunt. Not at all sharp. They weren't aiming to kill. Then the sling snapped forth. There was a crunchy flash of white, a split-second fire in my brain, and everything went black. The first time I came around, all I saw were many naked marching legs. The light around me was gold and green, late morning. The forest again. I tried to move, but something had bound me entirely. Then a searing pressure dug underneath my neck and the blackness returned. The second time, I finally felt the bruising pain in my skull. My vision was clear, but still darkened around the edges. I was back in the pit. The convoy of pygmies was hoisting me along. My sinuses were clogged, yet I could smell that familiar odor again. It was cold out, cold and airy, and I was nude. They'd stripped me of my damn clothes. As I squirmed, my head fell to the side, and I saw the face of the cliff was clustered with bucks, all watching me getting carried off. Go away. You're being used. You're being screwed over. I wanted to scream at them, but my voice had been lost somewhere miles back. As if detecting my resistance, another thumb pressed below my neck. The last thing I saw before blocking out the third time was the entrance to the drainage pipe, alive with the glow of torchlight. The walls around me were smooth, rounded, 
concrete, marked with symbols of ash and oil. The pipe was a funnel for the pygmies' noises, a torrent of whispers, clattering feet, slimy, chafing skin. I couldn't imagine what they were planning with me. They'd only been hostile up to this point. I never would have guessed it would have gone down the way it did. The space around me began to widen, and soon I found myself surrounded not just by my captors, but other pygmies as well, wearing expressions of primitive bewilderment. A few reached out and stroked me, their broken fingernails brushing across my cheeks and my sides. Soon my captors were being trailed by a parade of pygmies, all of whom were emitting low, subdued puffs of breath. Then it opened up entirely into a chamber the size of a cathedral. The concrete walls were studded with torches, casting the room into a permanent flicker. Metal tubes and dusty machinery snaked around and over us. Everything had been refurbished with the wild branches, dead vines, bones, and skulls. What must have been the entire pygmy tribe had gathered in the chamber, and they rose up in a chorus of anxiety when they saw me shuttled in. They set me down, still bound tight, and I looked around. For roughly every half-dozen pygmy, there was a doe, all broken down and nursing a child. I averted my gaze, but what was on the ceiling terrified me even further. It was an elaborate fresco, a Sistine Chapel of cave art, painted in the primordial colors of ash and berries and sap. Despite its arcane scrawl, I could still make out what it was depicting. There was a ring of deer, bucks and does. Within that ring was a circle of pygmies, their stooped postures and pale pallet gave them away, and standing in the middle, towering above them all, was a faceless, godlike figure, sporting mighty antlers, its arms outstretched, an infant pygmy propped in each hand. My first thought, my first naive, fear-cuddled thought, was that this was their deity they intended to sacrifice me to. I was the only one to escape after seeing them, and they'd brought me back to finish their hunt in Grandvois fashion. They undid my bindings, and my limbs seemed to spring forth, almost rejoicing being freed. But instead they set upon them again, holding me in place, three on each arm and leg, their collective strength was like boulders pressing onto my body. Movement was once again a lost prospect. I could vividly picture a blade digging into my ribs, them grabbing a hold of my heart, perhaps ripping it out and devouring it, still pulsing in its final beats of life. But what they brought out was the skull plate of a massive buck with robust antlers of what must have been over 20 points. I panicked, imagining they were going to rake my flesh away with it. Instead, they placed it underneath my head. It curled over my scalp, fitting like a helmet. In a flash, I made the connection. It wasn't my flesh or blood they were after. 
The pygmies exploded with calls and hollers. The entire chamber rang, and particles of rock rained from the ceiling. Pheromones and blood were flecked onto my naked skin, anointing me. Raw intestines were draped over my chest like a lay. The smell was overwhelmingly rotten and fecal. Torch-toting pygmies marched around us in a circle, the flames merging into a solid, blurry line of yellow. One of the females sauntered forth. A flare of blush bloomed across her pallid skin. Her nipples were erect like bullets. She placed her palms on my face, red and sticky with blood. There was the wet, cold, loving prod of a tongue. Everything went numb. My throat seized up. My muscles surrendered to her unrequited advance. She moved down to my waist. I... I don't think I need to recount the details. They got what they wanted. They had fulfilled whatever demented prophecy that was chalked on their walls. They had dumped me in a meadow. I awoke to the rays of the afternoon sun and the reeking odor of putrefaction. There were violets growing around me, brushing my skin, as if consoling me for my traumatic experience. By some bad stroke of fate, the same shirtless pickup truck guy saw me wandering naked on the side of the road. He was rather blasé about the circumstances. I shouldn't have been surprised in retrospect. I'm sure he would have invited Cthulhu into his truck if it meant he could further discuss compost with someone. To think only that previous night I'd been lamenting their ability to rear young on their own. Apparently they had, too, much longer than I had. I can't blame them for mustering the initiative to do something about it, one last saving grace to cement the continuation of their species. But I can't say I hope our children will see the light of day. The thought of my legacy, some twisted hybrid abominations, running amok through the woods, bred for the sole purpose of displacing their parents and becoming an independent generation. Well, it disturbs me to the depths of my soul. I don't know if their mothers would even be able to deliver our kin. They must have thought of that, too. My first partner wasn't the only one during the ritual. Now, I know talking about it's the only way to cope. The only way to attempt to accept what happened to me. Because I can't be angry at them, nor look down at them with disgust or shame. My trauma, their lust and delusion, they were just instances in nature's sweeping tide. It's what it intended. No circumstances... No reason. It just was. I hope you enjoyed Where the Deer Go to Die by author Nick Carlson as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found haunting other places on the internet, 
Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Carlson, spelled C-A-R-L-S-O-N. Once more, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash Carlson. That link will redirect you to creepypastastories.com, where you'll discover more stories of the weird, the adventurous, and the unusual, if you dare to probe the dark recesses of the unknown. And of course, you'll find links to the author's social media, website, and Amazon profile, where you can pick up his latest book. And if you decide to give Nick's debut novel a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word. And be sure to let him know you heard about him on this program and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky. Get some sleep. If you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel. 
the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.